I want you all to picture with me for a moment uh, a lion loose in your home. I mean, African lions, depending on the subspecies, uh, 500 pounds, 400 pounds, male African lions, uh, hungry, uh, looking uh, for your family. Maybe you have a two-story home and you got the kids upstairs. Maybe your husband and your wife uh, is in the bedroom and uh, between them and you is a lion. I, I wonder what extreme measures you would be will willing to do. What extreme measures you'd be willing to take to kill that lion? What extreme measures you'd be willing to take to, to get rid of the threat that is lurking in your home seeking to devour everything that you have? You see, we have, a, we have a different lion, not the kind you see at the zoo, that's in our homes, that are in our, many of our churches, and it's the lion of lust. And unlike the animal at the zoo that's behind bars, behind walls, behind glass, we have a, we have a lion that's very actively loose, creating not only division, but chaos and death in our families. We've got to recognize that the lion of lust that we're going to talk about is a much more destructive animal than the ones you see on the Discovery Channel. Barna Research and Covenant Eyes report that the porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, the NBA, and the MLB combined. If you think this doesn't get into your home, 11, the age 11, is the average age that a child is first exposed to porn. And 94% of children will see porn by the age of 14. Right? It's not just a problem with our children. 68% uh, of church-going men view porn on a regular basis. That's almost 7 in 10. Of young Christian adults, men or women, 18 to 24, 76% actively search for porn. Only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they never watch porn. 87% of Christian women have watched porn. Think about this. I pray in Bible teaching churches that these statistics are a little skewed in the positive, but what we at least see here uh, is, is a very large problem that's pervasive in the church, not only in America, but the church around the world. But we can't just say that this is a young person's problem this idea of lust and adultery. The Institute for Family Research is a study showing that extramarital affairs tend to increase in both males and females as they age. Uh, men peaking at 70 to 79, and women peaking at 60 to 69. So statistically, uh, the older you are, the more likely you are to enact sexual affairs outside of marriage. So we recognize here, at least fundamentally, that we're not talking about a, a male-only issue. We're not talking about a young person-only issue. We're talking about an issue across all people, across all times, because the issue that we're dealing with is a heart issue. And everyone who has a heart has a problem with lust and adultery. If we combine these realities with even subtle pornographic content like racy movies, inappropriate TV, uh, 
novels that have become popular in our culture with pornographic content. You, you add these in, which is what Christ does as we look into the text this morning. Uh, even things that Christians validate their consumption. We begin to understand that it's no small issue. This is, a, this is an issue that's pervasive, one that we are grateful for as Christians that, that God does not dismiss, that God uses and puts in his authoritative word for us to be able to combat and deal with the problems that we have in our world. And this is a massive one that Christ takes on. Really, it's the whole point of our sermon that we're going to get to, is that this, that your struggle with lust will often require the spirit-empowered employment of extreme measures that are well worth the sacrifice and energy you expend to kill your sin. It's the main point you have there at the top of your, your outline. That our struggle with sin, sin, our struggle with lust, it's going to require, like the lion... Loosen your home is going to require extreme measures for you to conquer. Lust is no different. Adultery is no different. It's going to require the spirit empowered. I put spirit empowered because it's not something you can do by pulling up your bootstraps uh, if you're not a Christian. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, this is the, what Jesus is addressing here is the fact that no legalistic effort is going to pronounce you righteous before God and free from the slavery of sin. However, with the spirit empowered realities that we have, as the church body, we can in a real way kill these sins. And although they may peek up their head every once in a while, they can be something sufficiently dealt with by the power of the Holy Spirit active in our lives as we walk trusting in Christ and we walk obeying his word. Go ahead and open with me in the Bible to Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. And as you're flipping there to Matthew 5, 27 through 30, we need to recognize that Jesus and much of the Sermon on the Mount is taking Moses' teaching uh, that the scribes, the Pharisees, that, that many in that time have taken Moses' teachings and have twisted them and contorted them to a place where they have only made them about subpar external conformity. Right? And, and so in the context of adultery and lust, there is this commitment that the Pharisees and, and those have made to say, as long as we're not taking a woman who is not our wife, who is married, and, and sleeping with her, then we've not committed adultery. You, you understand, that's the fundamental definition for adultery, is uh, someone taking another person's married spouse and having sexual relations with them. So that was, their, that was their bar of saying, as long as we don't do that, we have not committed sin. Anything under that, not. not you didn't break the law. The law just states we can't commit adultery, but Christ, as he does throughout the Sermon on the Mount and throughout the rest of the Gospels and in his ministry, he takes these laws that people have mitigated and, and minimized and twisted, and he puts them back where God had originally intended for them to mean and to apply in our life. So this is what he says there, starting in verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. Of course, he's quoting one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 14. And he says, you've heard that it was said. You have this skewed understanding of what God means when he says you shall not commit adultery. You just think it means this subpar external commitment to say, I'm just not going to do this external thing that everybody knows is wrong. Right? Instead, what he says is this in verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus has done here what he's done with previous commands that we've already looked at, like anger, like the law. 
And he takes these commands that people have made about external conformity and he turns them to the heart, to where God intended. Even as we talked about in Genesis 1.1, so we even talk about in James, one of the last books in the New Testament, when we look at Adam and Eve and we look at them in the garden, it, it, the sin did not begin when Eve took the fruit and ate of the fruit. It took when she was entertaining in her heart and in her mind the realities of autonomy apart from God. There's your sin. Now, sin has external manifestations that are equally as abhorrent and egregious before God, but the reality is sin is a heart problem. It's a heart problem in the garden. It's a heart problem now. It was a heart problem when Jesus was walking the earth. Grant Osborne, he has a commentary on the book of Matthew. He makes a point that as Jesus is talking to the Jews, he understands something about the way the Jews thought about adultery which is twisted in a nuanced way that we need to understand, is that the Jews were, were, more, were less concerned about sexual, immoral aspects of adultery and more concerned about the fact that adultery was seen as theft of another man's wife. Did you notice that? Okay, think about this for a minute. The Jews were more concerned that adultery is, quote-unquote, the theft of another man's wife, which it is, it very well is, right? Coveting, it's also against the commandments. But they were more concerned with the impact it had on their quality of life than the fact that sexual immorality is a sin against the way that God has designed man and woman. Taking an institution that God has created it and ripped it apart because of our heart's desire to lust and desire and to have what we do not have and to want to take what we do not have. But they made it about, well, you took what was mine and that's wrong because that affects my life. They weren't broken about the sexual immoral aspects of sin. They were just broken because it impacted them and they didn't like it. They didn't like what it did to them, not that God was against sin. See, this is a problem because their standard for right and wrong was based on how sin affects their quality of life. And I'm going to nail this in because I'm going to bring it right back to us because that's how we deal with sin so often. You and I are not all that concerned often. And what I mean by you and I, I mean it generally and not specifically, unless it specifically does apply. But in general, we all deal with sin in this way. We're okay with sin as long as it doesn't impact my life. We're okay with a lot of aspects of sin as long as it doesn't mess with my quality of life. The problem with that is, is that's not how God looks at sin. God sees sin as an internal heart problem. And I have heard so many people who profess to be Christians to say, I don't care how they feel, I don't care what they think, I don't care what's in their heart as long as they don't, as long as they don't do it externally. That's called legalism. Right? That's, called, that, that's, that's pharisaical. The reality is the Bible makes it clear that sin is in the heart. And we, even as a as church in a very conservative community, are more concerned that things outside are happening in the community that are egregious to our way of life. Instead of having burdens... Instead of having a broken heart that sin is egregious to God and that God mourns over sin, we're not concerned that people are sinning against God. We're concerned that people are sinning against us and making our lives the way that we don't want it. See, although it's a subtle reality, believing and trusting and thinking about sin in that way makes life and sin about you and not about God we got to make sin about what it is. You sinning against the God of the universe. Not just 
somebody sinning against you. Even David, when he committed adultery, when he prayed to God, what did he say? Against you and you alone have I sinned. Who did God, or who did David make sin about? His relationship with God. We got to recognize, and you have to start this way. If not, you get sin completely wrong, and you get the reason to kill sin completely wrong, and you get the realities of others' people's sin completely wrong. When you make sin about you, you make sin about somebody's relationship with you instead of where sin ought to be, and that's a, your heart is separated from God and at enmity with God. When we can start in that place, we recognize when Jesus says in verses 27 and 28, you have heard it said you should not commit adultery. You guys are just making it about interpersonal relationships, which have a big part in God's, in God's scheme and God's plan. But you've got to recognize that sin is sin because God said it was sin, and it grieves God. And verse 28 puts it where it needs to be. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Why? Because you've sinned against God before you've done anything external and physical. The physical and external are often the things that impact other people, but you have already, because of the wickedness in your heart, been separated and severed from God simply because you have a wicked heart. And God wants to deal with the internal problem because when you deal with the internal problem, guess what also happens? The horizontal relationships are rectified and reconciled. But the problem too many times is we, even, even in the church and even in our culture and our community, even in this community here in New Braunfels, we are more concerned about behavioral modification than we are about heart transformation because of the gospel. And I'm going to tell you, if that's where we're going to go, we're going to lose. You're going to lose. If you're out here trying to create behavioral modifications, not that they're inherently bad. We want people to act better, don't we? They store up less wrath for themselves for eternity when they act better. But acting better still means that you're eternally separated from God apart from Christ. Right? We don't want behavioral modification. We want heart transformation because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That changes the way that we engage with people who sin. We make it about the heart, the same place that Christ made it about the heart. And when we make it about the heart, we recognize that it's very pervasive. These statistics that we showed you at the beginning of the sermon make it bad enough, but when you bring in the biblical reality that Jesus is saying, we've all lusted and committed adultery in our heart. A hundred percent of us are guilty before God. That's pervasive, right? That's everyone. We are all guilty of this reality. Because of that, we need to do this, and it's point number one on your outline. You need to increase your sensitivity towards the prevalence of adultery. You need to increase your sensitivity towards the prevalence of adultery. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, understand this, because if you're a woman here, you're like, he's talking about men here. Well, that's because there were, a lot, there were a lot of laws in that time that were there to protect women. And that's something that uh, the Old Testament does that a, most ancient Near Eastern cultures did not do, was protecting their women. We'll get into a lot of that next week when we begin talking about adultery and remarriage. But he's addressing the men, because the men who took women made them adulterers. They were adulterers too, but it had a much larger impact on women when something like this was done in that time period. The reality here is not that Jesus is saying women aren't included in this. He's addressing the problem that those men had was basically, I can divorce my wife and go find another woman, and we'll get to that next week, and go and, and have her, and then when I'm done with her, and I, I married her, I can divorce her and go to the next woman. And go. And Jesus said, all you're doing is making adulterers, and you yourself are an adulterer. We'll get to the marriage, and the steaming marriage next week, and the realities of 
the permanency that God had originally commended and commanded marriage to be and what we have done to make it what we have in our culture today. But all of this to say, Jesus is saying this is everybody. This is all of us. We're all inclusively involved in this. And we need to be more sensitive about it. And I, and I use the word all-inclusive because what we want to do is instead of saying, I want to be sensitive about how I am this, we want to say, I'm not this. I don't do this. I don't struggle with this. Uh, other people may, but I'm not. Well, then we're not actually being sensitive about the reality that we could fall into these things. When you think about what TV shows do you watch, what movies do you watch, what books with sexually explicit content have you read, how have you emotionally involved yourself, even if you're thinking about it as a woman, have you emotionally involved yourself either in another man's life or in shows that you're watching and using uh, illicit imagery and words in your mind and entertaining those things with your heart? That's adultery. And all we're saying, because it's easy with men, right? It's a lot, a lot easier to, to define this, at least in a man's life, uh, because we have in our culture. But we need to all recognize that it's pervasive and we need to be sensitive to it. We need to be sensitive to it because it's a real problem and it's not just in everyone else's life. It's in all of our lives. And we gotta be willing to call it what it is, call a lion a lion, and let's get rid of the lions. I think about the sensitivity that we should have and I, when I thought about sensitivity, I thought about people that have gluten intolerances. You ever met those people? Like, I mean, I mean, they're like, they're like real, you know, it's like, you know, they, that's <laughs> okay, now, let, me, let me not say things I shouldn't, okay? Like, there are people, right, who have uh, gluten intolerances, they have celiac, is that right? Is that a correct thing? I don't know all my stuff, I'm just, I just read things. Okay, celiac, that's dangerous, you can die, but there are a lot of people who don't have celiac, who just have gluten, like, you know, they don't feel good when they eat gluten, you know? But my point about this is, do you recognize how seriously they take that? I mean, I have, since I have lived in California and now even here in Texas, because uh, I grew up in Texas, gluten wasn't even a thing, right? You ate what your mama put on the table, all right? If you didn't like it, you didn't eat, okay? <laughs> all right, but I moved to California, God bless us, and <laughs> then I moved back here and it's our, it was here anyway, it was here before we got here. People, like everywhere I go, people are like, does that have gluten in it? I don't know, you know, it's like, you know, I'm like, they're like, I can't have gluten, and I'm like, did you bring your lunch, you know, like, like, and they're like, yeah, I did, I actually brought a whole, whole thing, and it's like, man, what if we were that sensitive about the realities of lust and adultery in our world, I mean, somebody who has like a gluten intolerance, you can blindfold them and stick a bag of chips in front of their nose, they could sniff it and be like, I have gluten in it, and you're like, how do you know that? I know because, I, because I'm serious about it. Like I, I've read up on it. I've researched about it. I recognize all the things that tend to have gluten on it. I have researched all of the factories that make all the food, and I know the ones that even, that even though that doesn't have gluten, it was made in the same facility with the other things that do have gluten, so I can't even have that because it was almost close to something that did have gluten in it. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? I'm like, where is that zeal when it comes to killing our sin? Like, Where is that zeal when it's like, you know, instead of that zeal to stay as far away from lust and sin and adultery as we can, we, we like to cozy up to it and say, there's the line. And I like to get as close to it as possible. Instead of saying, no, 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 that was in the same factory. That was in the same zip code. I want to be as far away from that as possible. I don't want anything to do with that because I know. I, I'm read up on it. I'm informed. 
right? I'm informed before I turn on a TV show. I've already, I've already looked up. I did this the other day with a new movie coming out that I was super stoked to watch because I'm a, I like history and stuff. And I looked it up, and, I, and it said explicit content, nudity, sexual content. And I said, I'm not going to watch that. Instead of saying, oh, I just like that. It feels good to me. I'm going to go. And then you go and you sit in the movie and you're like, oh, I'm here. I can't just get up and leave. It's like, no, no, no. That's my problem, you see. Because when it comes to gluten, you'll read all the fine print and you'll go onto the website and read 10,000 words to figure out if that thing has ever even smelt gluten before. But when it comes to running away from sin, we, we, just, we say, oh, I just, I, I fell into it. It just happened. It's like because you aren't being careful. You aren't even looking. You aren't even acknowledging the realities that these things exist. And when they do show up, you say, well, I just, oh, just messed up again. It's like that is not the way that we deal with sin in Christ Jesus. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ for righteousness. You understand that. We have been forensically made righteous before God, but he has also called us to walk in righteousness, which is why 1 Peter says, be holy for I am holy. We're talking about something that is internal, that becomes external as we live out our faith in Christ Jesus. But I have gone too far to the middle of the sermon. We need to be more sensitive towards these things. We need to be asking ourselves, we need to be reading the fine print when it comes to the movies or watching the TV shows or watching the relationships that we decide to be in. Like, you need to know not only what the people you're around are thinking and saying, but also the fact that maybe you shouldn't be around the kind of people you're around. Maybe you need to be changing your environment because the reality is you live in an environment that's conducive to lions. Right? I got a lot of illustrations. I don't need to use them. You get it. You should not be in environments where predators exist that can harm your life. And it's the same thing when you're talking about lust and adultery. Get out of them. And when we talk about the heart, and a lot of this is easy because we talk about don't doing the physical things. Don't do the physical things. Because the physical things are things people see, things that can be found out very easily. But Jesus makes this clear when he jumps in and he says, this is a matter of the heart, you understand. It's a matter of the heart. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, in verse 5, he says, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. When I, when I found that scripture, it was, like, it, was like a warm, it was like a warm what? No, it was like a warm blanket or a glass of fresh water. Okay, I thought this is such a wonderful truth of scripture that if I want to live a life full of faithfulness, it's not just about doing, it's about even the way that my, I think. It's about what I let entertain my mind because so many of us are taught, well, you can think it as long as you don't manifest it. And it's like, the Bible doesn't say that. Like, if, you, if that is part of your Christianity, just understand that it's not biblical Christianity. Well, you know, if I didn't do it, I didn't really sin. It's like Jesus said. If you even look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery. Are you, is, is adultery sin? All right. If you think about someone with lustful intent, have you sinned? Did you do it physically? So you still sin, though. Do you, do you understand? And all I'm saying is, let's just have a biblical definition of sin. Just have a biblical definition of sin. Even if we don't like it, we recognize that it's not just the outward manifestations of sin that's sin. It's also the intents of our heart and our mind. Which is really bad news if we're not Christians here. Because you're like, well, that's just, that's my whole life. <laughs> Enter Jesus Christ. Absolutely. right? That is your whole life. And that is your problem. That you're completely separated from God with no ability and propensity to ever draw near to God. Because you are separated. Because he is holy and you are not. I 
that brings me to that point in the sermon where we are transitioning from this idea that you have no power over sin apart from Christ and to that part in the sermon where it says, but Christ, right? But Christ. Right? Left to ourselves, you know, there's no amount of physical, emotional, uh, no amount of mental exertion that's going to rid you of a wicked heart. And that's something, I'm just mounting up the bad news, bad news, a lot of bad stuff here. Right? Nothing. You can't do anything to rid yourself of a wicked heart. You can't do anything to rid yourself of the lustfulness that you have in your life apart from Christ. Because what we need is a work that we cannot do internally, and that's a spiritual heart transplant. Right? This is my way of saying it, a spiritual heart transplant. Right? If we need a reminder, which I think sometimes we do, we need a reminder sometimes of what we've preached previously so we can understand where we're at right here in the text. But we need a reminder of the people who get to see God. Remember we did that in the Beatitudes? Like, who gets to see God? It's a fundamental question across all cultures, across all time. People always ask the question, who gets to go? Who gets to be with God? Well, remember, Matthew 5, 8 tells us, blessed, happy, makarios, remember, fortunate, are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You want to know who sees God? The pure in heart, right? This is an eschatological reality, and this is a current reality, even in our existence today, all right? You may show you. Who gets to go be with God? Those whom Christ has purified, who have pure hearts, okay? We all get that one, don't we? But let's sit here, okay? How many of you in your sin have felt so distant from God? And you have all this sin in your life, and maybe you haven't even like defined it as living in sin, but now maybe you're hearing it, and you're like, you've been living in sin, but yet you also say, well, I can't, I can't feel God. I can't know God. I, can't, I feel so far from God. The pure in heart see God even when it comes to this life. If you want to live in sin and you want to lay in other places where you ought not to, you're not going to see God. You're not going to be in intimacy with God. You can't be in intimacy of God when you're laying over there having intimacy with other things that God abhors. All I'm saying is these things are true both for eternity and for the life now. Even as a Christian, you, can say, you can't say that, well, just because Christ saved me, I don't have any work to do when it comes to killing my lions. It's absolutely not. You are saved in order to be a lion slayer. Like, think about that. You are saved in order to triumph over sin. Why? Because Christ died in order that he would triumph over sin. And so, therefore, what has he saved you for? The triumph over sin. Right? He didn't save you that you would lay defeated in sin until he comes back and gets you. He has produced in you a propensity and ability and a capacity through his Holy Spirit and the new heart he has given you in order to slay lions in your life. Metaphorically, right? lust, murder, adultery, all the sins that, that Christ had come to die for, he has not just let, let you live in after he saved you. He has provided you a way of escape and empowered you to walk that way. I find all that through a verse that we found very familiar throughout this series, and that's Ezekiel 36. You should jot that down if you haven't. If you're new here, it's so important to the faith of the Christian. I'm going to tell you, your crux of your whole faith will lie within the framework of Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. Every bit of your faith will find, its, will find its ultimate understanding through what Ezekiel says in chapter 36, 25 through 27. It's looking forward to, and you know the prophets, Ezekiel, they're looking forward to a time when the Messiah is going to come because things weren't looking very good. All right? There was exile, and they were returning from exile, and things were just not the same, but they were looking forward to a hope, and, but there were still a lot of things missing 
and Ezekiel prophesies, it says, here's what's going to happen when the Messiah comes in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. Isn't that the good news? Right? There's a problem that you have is that you're unclean, like you're dirty. And there's nothing that makes you feel more dirty even in this world than lust and adultery. There is nothing that makes you feel more dirty than that. Nothing makes you feel more unclean than the realities of lust and adultery. And yet the promise of the gospel is, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all of your idols. You want to think, you, you can't focus on God, you can't think about God, you, you idolize relationships, you idolize sex, you idolize uh, porn, pornographic images, you idolize things because you worship them and you give up things for them and you sacrifice for them and you're willing to lose in order to take those things, that's called an idol. Whatever it is that you are willing to sacrifice for, whatever it is that you're willing to do without other things in order to get that, that's called an idol. And there is very little in our world that rises to the level of idol more than lust and adultery. And yet here, the promise of Christ is that I will cleanse you from all of your idols. I'm going to take those idols away from you. And I will cleanse you. In verse 26, here's the Here's the reason why we understand that we, it's not just being cleansed spiritually for eschatological hope. That is a hope that is to come. I'm not just cleansed so that I, come, I get into eternity. Read the rest of this. Verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. You remember your problem was a heart problem? You weren't pure in heart, so you couldn't see God? Well, here's the good news of the gospel. He came to give you a new heart. And he wants to put that heart within you. He's going to remove the heart that you have, is what it says in verse 27. And he's going to put in you a heart of flesh. Your heart is hard as stone. It's not going to see God. He wants to give you a heart of flesh. But listen to this when it comes to the reality of the life today for the Christian who has a new heart. Verse 27. I will put my spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, third person, the triune Godhead. I will put my spirit within you. So now you have the Holy Spirit, omnipotent, third person, of the triune Godhead, who now lives in you. Talk about capacity and propensity to be able to, with the power of God, to be able to overcome sin. You literally have God, who is an active agent in the creation of the world, who spoke it into creation, living inside of you. And talk about the power that we have to overcome and kill lions. There it is. All right, you have the spirit within you. Listen to this. Who will cause you, we've heard this two weeks ago, will cause you to walk in my statutes and will cause you to be careful to obey all my rules. Did you notice that there? The Christian who is full of the Holy Spirit, who has the new heart, will be caused to walk in the statutes of God and be caused to be careful to obey all of his rules. That's a lot different than this hyper-grace thought in, Christ, in current Christian culture, isn't it? That if I'm saved, I can just... It's, it, how I live is, is... It's not great. I know God doesn't love it, but it doesn't matter. But that's not even what the Old Testament says about looking forward to the New Covenant. He says, no, no, no. No, this whole reality is we can't do it, and we had no power to do it. And Christ has come to save us, redeem us, give us his Holy Spirit, give us a new heart, and then he's going to cause us to walk in his statutes. He's literally going to cause us to kill the sin of us. He's going to cause us to be able to obey the things that he says. So therefore, he says, do not commit adultery. So what is he going to cause you to do? Stop committing adultery, right? This is good news. But the problem is it's only good news if you understand the Bible correctly. Because with this hyper-grace realities that we have, it's like there's no real victory. 
We, we sit defeated our whole life because we just, we're all sinners. We just, we all, we're all sinners. We just all, we all sin. It's like, is this the right way to combat sin? Is to just say things like, we're all just sinners. Now, here's why. Because I'm not just, you know, Bible thumping, domineering about our sin. Listen, here's why I think this is unhealthy. It's unhealthy to say, well, we're just all sinners. We don't use that logic for anything in our lives. Go back to the gluten intolerance. We don't say, well, everything just has gluten in it, so I just, I, what can I do, you know? We, we don't use that logic with that, do we? we instead, we say, I'm, I'm getting away from it. I don't want any part of it. However, sometimes, gluten-free people, you still kind of stumble upon some gluten every once in a while, don't you? Don't you? Anybody in here? No? You? Yeah? I got it. Yeah. Sometimes you still do. And you do it, and you ultimately and immediately regret it. And then you say, I'm not going to do that again. And you flee from it. See, that's the right attitude in the Christian life when it comes to sin. I'm not preaching a perfectionism like a John Wesley, right? I'm not, I'm not going to preach this progressive perfectionism that sometime in your life as you're walking before you even see God that you're going to somehow be able to be perfect. No one's going to preach. I'm not going to preach that to you. I don't think it's biblical. But what I am going to preach to you is a progressive righteousness that is that you will progressively be made into the likeness of Christ as you live your life, which does include you walking away from sin, killing sin, repenting from sin, rejecting your sin. But before you even get to all that, we got to at least sum it up this way. You want to get to that place, which I hope you do, you need to trust in Christ as your only solution for purity. You, gotta, you want it to be sprinkled clean. Right? You want to have the spirit in you that is going to cause you to walk in the statutes and the rules of God. You're going to need to trust in Christ as your only solution for purity. That's you recognizing, as was, which I hope we all have at this point, that we're sinners separated from a holy God. And you need to repent and place your trust in Christ. You need to trust in Christ as your only solution for purity. A little, a, little side, a little side note for anyone who says, well, it just sounds like a, a, a buzzkill to walk in statutes and rules. Like rules and statutes, isn't that what I try to get away from in my faith? Tell me, what part of God's rules and statutes are not both beautiful, good for you, good for your family, and better if you do them? Can you name any? No. Because doing the things that God wants you to do is how we're actually designed to live. And so don't tell me the statutes and the rules of God. Uh, you know, that, I, I don't like to have to follow rules. That's your, but that's your problem. You should want to follow God's rules. Like if, you're, if, you, if you have this argument in your heart, like, I don't want to follow God's rules. I don't want to follow God's commands. That's why you need God. Because you don't want to do what he says. And all I'm saying is that that's the problem of the heart of man. You ought to want to follow the rules and obey God's commands. Because they're good. And they're good for you. That's a soapbox I'll put back there. Okay. Okay, here's, we're going to trust in Christ. Why do we have to trust in Christ? Uh, Ezekiel 36, I'll give you kind of a parallel passage in the New Testament that proves that Ezekiel's prophecy was correct about who Christ is. Titus 2.14 is a great text to show you that reflected in the New Testament realities of Christ. Titus 2.14 says this. Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness, right? That's exactly what 25 is saying. He came to sprinkle clean water on us and cleanse us from uncleanliness. And he has come to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. 
Is God concerned with your purity? Absolutely. He has come to save you for purity, for himself, for his own possession, for good works. Did you see that in the text right there? If you're not there, you should turn there if you question it. If not, jot it down and look at it later. Christ has redeemed us and purified himself for himself who are zealous for good works. You want to talk about the, the best work you could ever do? Slay your lion. Slay your lions of lust. I'm not, I'm not asking you to fill in the blank whatever your lion is. I'm telling you your lion is sin and lust and adultery. That's your lion. And Christ has come to purify you for himself, for his own possession. He, wa- he cares about your purity. He wants to save you from your impurity and cause you to walk in his ways. I've talked a lot about it, but whether you've committed physical adultery or adultery in your heart, Christ has made us two promises to purify us. And I'm going to only touch on them because most of the sermon has been me extrapolating on them anyway, uh, is two things he's done to purify us from our sin, our lust. The words are justification and sanctification. If you don't know them, write them down. If you're foggy about what those mean, write them down and I'll tell you. Okay? And this is why we can be so ardent and so assured that we can fight sin and prevail through the power of the Holy Spirit because he has justified us. That means we are adjudicated by God. That means we are adjudicated by God and he has deemed us forensically just before him. Okay? And in simple terms, God has put all of the sins of those who turn from their sins and place their trust in Christ on Christ and given you Christ's righteousness. Therefore, when you stand before God, God sees the righteousness of Christ and not your unrighteousness. Your unrighteousness was paid for on the cross in Christ. There's justification, okay? Which means that now before God, even though there is sin in my life, which is, this is the grace, right? You gotta understand the grace. You gotta understand the grace, okay? You're gonna, you, you come to this church, you're gonna hear the grace of God. There is no gospel apart from the grace of God. And the grace of God is, I'm still going to fail. Anybody? We're still going to fail. But that isn't the mantra of the Christian life. Well, we all just fail. No, 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 no. That's, that's not the mantra of the Christian life. The Christian life is Christ. I, I walk in a victorious procession with Christ, spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere is what Scripture teaches. So I'm going to walk victoriously. And every once in a while, the sin's head's going to pop itself up, and that's not going to condemn me to hell. Do you recognize that? That's the beauty of the grace, is even though that I will fall, it does no longer condemn me. For there is therefore now no condemnation, Romans 8, for those who are in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean I don't fight sin. It means I'm not condemned by it if it ever, even for a millisecond, has victory even in the small part of my life at a moment. There's your grace. That's necessary. That's so crucial to the gospel. But you're justified. Now, sanctification is the process in which the Holy Spirit conforms you into the likeness of Christ. That's sanctification. That's your life here before there. Everything from the moment that you were saved to the moment that you were glorified and brought to Christ is sanctification. And your entire life of sanctification is the Holy Spirit with your new heart saying, Here's how we walk. Here's what we do. Here's what we don't do. Literally, sanctification is literally Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. That's called sanctification. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And when you don't walk in his ways and his statutes, there's this bad feeling that you have in your heart called conviction. Then you repent from that conviction. You learn from it then he empowers you and grows you and you look a little bit more like the likeness of Christ and you keep walking. 
I just talked about sin right then, didn't I? But it didn't seem in a defeated way, did it? I talked about sin and us falling in sin, but in a way that leads us to sanctification and victory with Christ. See, this is the problem with our culture and the way that we talk about sin in such a way that we all are just, we're just all sinners. We're going to sin all the time. It's like, no. Sanctification says, though you may sin, we repent from that. We move on from it. Christ strengthens us and we continue walking in righteousness. There's your key for faithfully walking with Christ. I'm running out of time, but let's see what we have. Okay, here's, here's the whole crux of this whole sermon in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, look at verse 29 in Matthew 5. The whole sermon lands us right here. If we thought I've been harsh so far, you just wait and see what Jesus has to say to us. Look at this. If your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Did I say anything that harsh? I didn't. Right? But Christ is serious about our sin. Maybe I need to be more harsh. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Everyone, the first thing everyone wants to say is when they read that verse is they want to say, Jesus is using hyperbole. Like, that just shows the extent of your heart that the first thing you want to say is, oh, it's just hyperbole. No, what Jesus wants us to understand is, oh man, he takes sin real serious. Oh, and also that's hyperbole. Don't rip your arm and your eye out. Okay, but that's not how we think about it, is it? We say, oh no, 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 that's hyperbole because you want to mitigate and belittle your own sin. Don't do that. The first thing you should think about here is, mm, man, Jesus really, really hates sin and really calls us away from it. And then say, well, he also doesn't want me to self-mutilate. Right? But instead, what he says here is that living in a suboptimal way on earth is preferred than living in sin and then burning in hell forever. Did you hear that? Living in a suboptimal way here on earth is preferred than risking spending eternity in hell. So living here, think about this. Even in the first century, people who were blind and lame, they didn't get to participate in the, in the temple worship. They weren't whole. They were, they were blemished. Like people who had one eye and one arm were outcasts. But yet Jesus says they are better off than anyone who would think by keeping suboptimal external regulations is going to somehow get them to eternity, because it ain't. Those people who would gouge their eyes out and rip their arms off for the sake of righteousness, those people are on the right track. Why do I know they're on the right track? Because the only people, according to Matthew 5, 3 and 4, only people who are poor in spirit and who mourn over their sin are going to be at a place where they would imagine that ripping their arm off and gouging their eye out would be better than living in sin. Only people who mourn over their sin would, would entertain this idea that my mutilated body would be more useful to God than me living in sin with everything I've got. That is the heart after God. Not that you would self-mutilate, but that you would recognize that it is better to live in a suboptimal way here than to have all of your faculties here and be living in sin. That brings me to the third point. You need to ex employ extreme measures to deal with lust. You need to employ extreme measures to deal with lust. He just recapitulates in verse 30 with the same hyperbole, talking about our right hand being cut off, and it's better to lose your right hand than it is that your whole body would go to hell. You just recognize this, you know, as we, as we get to, to our closing point in the sermon, that your right eye and your right hand in ancient times were, 
the significance of power and authority. Most people, like they are today, were right eye dominant and right hand dominant. How many of you are right hand and right eye dominant? Raise your hand. All right. How many of you are like, I don't even never even had that question before? Most of you are. Very few of you are left hand dominant, left eye dominant. The reality was most of the culture is right hand and right eye dominant. So for Jesus to say, your right hand and your right eye, he's saying, listen, it is even better to lose your predominantly powerful faculties in your fight against sin than to live in sin. And all we're going to say is we need to employ extreme measures to deal with lust when our lives. We need to employ extreme measures. Why, why can I say extreme measures? I'm being extreme. Well, this hyperbole isn't the only place I've, I draw that from. One of the last verses, Hebrews 12.4, jot that down, Hebrews 12.4. Hebrews 12.4 says this, that in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Who is he talking about? Who is he comparing the struggle with sin to? Who? I hear some whispers. Jesus. He's saying, you have not yet, in your struggle with overcoming sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Who did resist to the point of shedding blood and dying for sin? Jesus. So if Jesus went as far as to shed his whole life in the blood for our sin, how much more work do we have to do? And this is the, this is the point of the writer in Hebrews to say, listen, you have, not, you have not even gone that far. You have not employed many measures at all in your sin, much less even shedding your blood. That, I, I want that to both convict you and give you hope. Like The hope is like you got a long way to go here. I mean, what is cutting out the internet at home in comparison to shedding your blood? What is getting a flip phone instead of an iPhone in compared to shedding your blood? Yeah? What is, I'm no longer going to stream Netflix and Amazon Prime and, and Hulu uh, because I, that is, gives me a proclivity and a propensity to watch things that I shouldn't. How far is that from shedding your blood? A long way, and yet most of us won't even do that. You see? Most of us want to put ourselves in positions where we're going to sin that are like baby steps for anybody who wants to walk with Christ to say, hey, just get a, do, you deal, do away with those things. They're small. These are small things. So how far in our struggle with sin have we resisted short of the point of shedding our blood? I think that is a great place to sit to say we can all employ some greater measures in our life to deal with our sin because that's what Christ did. He employed the greatest measure to deal with your sin. And if you want to say we love God and we're running after God and we love Christ, then we're going to employ measures that Christ would say, that's somebody who wants to kill sin like I wanted to kill sin. As I said to the nine o'clock, in your homes, they're your home. Right? Your home is stewarded by God. Uh, God has given you uh, tools and resources in his word. He has given you himself and his Holy Spirit. Uh, he has given you a community to help you grow. He's also given you pastors who have biblical authority to call out sin in your life uh, and to call us to holiness in the Lord. Right? And we're all accountable to one another, including your pastor. None of us are outside of the accountability of one another and the accountability of Christ and the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to tell you this. When it comes to lions, when it comes to the lion of lust, we want, to, we want you to eradicate that from your home. But what we're also going to say is there is no lions coming into this church. And your pastors aren't going to let it happen. And that means for you, if you're not willing to let go of your sin, you're not going to walk in here with a lion on a leash. Okay? Because I'm going to tell you what, we'll kill it on a leash and you'll drag it out. Whatever we got to do to kill sin as a church, we're going to do. 
And whatever your pastors need to do to walk alongside of you, let's do it. And all I want to do is what God wants us to do. And that's to live for him and to recognize that he has purchased us and bought us for a purpose. And that purpose is for holiness and righteousness as we await the day of his arrival. I pray that our, our commitment together as a church. And with that, I'd love for you to pray with me. God, a heavy, a heavy topic in your, in your word that you uh, make a very large point to not overlook problem so often is we do overlook these things, and we are thankful for a congregation who desires expository preaching, that we do not skip verses, that we go verse by verse to make sure that we have all of your word stored away in our heart, that we might not sin against you, is what your word says. So I pray that this helped in storing some more of your word into our hearts, that we would live for you and that we'd love you, that we'd have tools and resources both in this congregation and through the work of your spirit that would allow us to kill the sin in our lives. We are grateful and thankful for you and for the people that you have around us. We pray that this is fruitful and helpful in our lives and encouraging for our souls. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.